All right. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? We're doing okay here in the Museum District, and I want to say hello to our, uh, to our friends at Timber Grove as well. Uh, they're watching live right now. Y'all say hi to our Timber Grove family. What's up, Timber Grove? And, and I think if it's working, for the first time in months, we're live streaming this message online. So instead of the pre-recorded messages, aka Robot Church, as it was called a few times to my chagrin, we have a live congregation worshiping online. So y'all say hey to our online campus as well. We love you guys. Y'all, uh, if you're watching online, be sure to check in in the comments. Just let us know where you're at and, uh, and whether you're um, at home or traveling, wherever you are, uh, you're part of us today. So we're, we're really grateful for you. Be patient with us if uh, you do worship online, mostly. Um, we're still a work in progress here in this new building. Um, you might imagine this building built in the 1930s didn't come pre-outfitted for online worship. And there's a lot of work that still has to be done, and it has been done by our teams to make um, uh, the, that experience happen. So I'm so grateful. Um, I'm on fire today. I'm really excited today because uh, it's rodeo season, best time of the year to be in Houston, Texas. Went to the rodeo twice this week. I preached three different sermons and went to the rodeo twice. It's an amazing thing that I have a voice anymore. Also some Little League thrown in there, like uh, God has just really blessed me with extra vocal chords this week or something because I've just been uh, really uh, having a great time having a great time this week. And today, we get to start a brand new series of messages, which always excites me. So uh, we're going to put all that romance and love and all that intimacy stuff behind us and move on to a, a subject that's much more fun to discuss. Uh, the new, new uh, series is called The Problem of Pain. <laughs> so um, maybe not as much fun. Um, but we are in that season of Lent this week. Um, and so this is, uh, this is our Lenten journey. Between now and Easter, we're going to be talking about how to find the purpose, the God-given purpose of the painful seasons we go through in life. And um, this is something unlike the romance and marriage or dating series that we do sometimes. This is something that everyone can resonate with, I think. I think this is something that we have all wondered about as we all go through pain and suffering of different kinds. Most of us have pretty easy lives, if we're honest. I have the easiest I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that I've had this you know, difficult journey that always has me questioning why, God, why, but we've all been there. We've all felt those, those pains, and, and we bear the scars, and we're all survivors in some way or another. And the, the pain isn't really the problem in and of itself. The problem with the pain is reconciling our experience with pain or reconciling just watching the news and seeing other people's pain as we've seen in the last 10 days in Ukraine, we continue to pray for the, the most vulnerable people, for everyone involved in that conflict, um, and uh, for peace to come, obviously. But when we witness these things, it's not just that we witness these things or that we feel pain. The problem is reconciling that experience with the God they told us about at church. How do we reconcile the pain we feel in this life with a God, we're told, is all-loving and all-powerful and all-knowing. And the conflict there is, the cognitive dissonance is, is if God is all-loving, wouldn't he want us not to suffer? Obviously, anybody that loves their kids would say, one of my hopes for my kids is that they not suffer. That just seems to be 
obvious to us. And the second point is that if God is all-powerful, isn't it within his capability to put an end to our suffering or to keep us from suffering? That seems patently obvious. And then, of course, there's the all-knowing part, which is the most complicated, if I could be honest with you, theologically speaking. How do we reconcile an all-knowing God with the problem of pain? Because if he knows everything, then he knew that we would suffer before we ever suffered once. And so when you really dive into the scriptures, it's hard to get around the notion that, that we haven't been set up to suffer by God. And so this is why this series is so important. Because this is a topic that drives people away from faith. Maybe more than any other topic. I just, pastor, I was a Christian. I just can't make sense of that thing that happened to me. Or I don't understand why God would let unjust suffering occur. The whole bad things happening to good people conundrum. I don't understand it. Therefore, if this God of yours exists, I do not deem this God to be worthy of my worship. That's the theological conundrum that we're trying to tackle with this series over the next six weeks. And it's going to be a slow process. We're not going to solve every problem today. In fact, today we're going to start with, I think, the, one of the easier conversations in this, in this uh, series. So all of the Christian understanding of suffering really begins and ends with Jesus because we couch the whole conversation in the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh, the fullness of God dwelling among us, and he suffered. And so some of the alternative explanations in the world and in other religions about why we suffer, they, they are canceled out by that simple fact because oftentimes what you'll hear from very religious people of different religions is people suffer because they disobey God. But Jesus didn't disobey God, and he suffered more than just about anyone. And so that, that can't be a universal reason why we suffer or the purpose for our suffering. And so Jesus' suffering really raises a lot of questions. And I think, as I often will say, we should look to Jesus as the way out of this problem and not try to find our own ways. The Christian understanding of pain and suffering really does stand apart. It is unique in that it, we do not attribute the pain you've experienced in this life to your sin in this life, to your sin in a past life, to your parents' or grandparents' sins before you. None of that really computes with us. And you, you, you're not suffering in this universe because, you know, as the secular humanist would say, it's just an indifferent universe, and we weren't meant to be here to begin with. There's no one looking out for us. We are alone here, and deal with it. That's kind of the secular answer to the problem of pain. Let's build better governments, but other than that, there's not a lot to say, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because we're just unhappy accidents floating through space in an indifferent cosmos. Are you all depressed by that? I'm depressed by that. <laughs> But the Christian response to pain is much more powerful and potent. It's deep and layered. We're going we're gonna to explore it today through the simple lens of the pain caused by betrayal. Okay, so Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. We often think of the passion of Jesus, the Via Dolorosa, all of that as being his season of suffering. Jesus suffered his whole life, and he suffered in the simplest of ways. He suffered hunger. We know he suffered sadness at the loss of a friend. We know that, that Jesus suffered um, uh, betrayal, as we're going to explore today. And he wept 
It wasn't just the, the painful agony on the cross. He suffered like we suffer. And that's really one of the, one of the ways that uh, the, our understanding of pain and suffering stands apart. And I'm going to sum, sum it up in three simple sort of vignettes here. So first, we believe Jesus came to suffer like us. In other words, as, uh, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 uh, says, Jesus uh, is our high priest. And we do not have a high priest unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so we have a, a God who came and suffered like us by being tempted and by, by experiencing things we experience day to day. But it doesn't just end there. Jesus suffered like us, and he suffered um, by us. And what that means is we had a hand in his suffering from a heavenly or cosmic perspective that maybe we don't often want to own up to. And finally, most importantly, Jesus suffered for us. I'm going to take those a little bit one at a time. I'm going to spend most of the time on the first one. Jesus suffered like us. And one of the ways that he did that was by being tempted to sin. And there is a relationship I want to explore between temptation and betrayal that may not be obvious on the surface, but it's an important one to make, an important connection to make in our minds. Turn, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, if you have your own Bible, um, good. Um, <laughs> good job. I don't know. Um, you're a good Christian. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where your heart's at today. But if you have your Bible, pull it out. If you don't, uh, that's, that's why we have grace. Okay, so there's Bible right in front of you if you want to get it and squint really hard to read that tiny, tiny print. I know the Keep promising new Bibles. They are in the building. Are they here? Oh, oh. I didn't even know. Fantastic. Brad, uh, Brad is, uh, is, is one, of the, one of the guys that made this possible. Um, Brad, we thank you for the, our new Bibles. These are great. So, um, Brad Wright. Um, love you guys. Okay, so uh, Matthew chapter 4. You can read the Bible now. This is great. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And this is... Um, about uh, the time Jesus was tempted to sin in the wilderness, and he suffered in that temptation. So when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, uh, sorry, then Jesus, then verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it's a long time, okay, he was hungry. The tempter, that's Satan, came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Again, he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. This is, this is dripping with irony. Satan is about to quote scripture to Jesus. All right? So then Satan said, he will, if it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's from Psalm 91. That is a direct quote. Satan didn't like misquote the scripture, but he did take it out of context. Psalm 91 is about God's angels catching someone who is falling against their will, not about someone who has jumped to test God, all right? That's why Jesus responds the way that he does. He answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. All right, so think with me for a second about the, how Satan tempted Jesus. Did Satan tempt Jesus? with evil, sinister things. Think with me. So did he say to Jesus, hey, talk to these rocks, and these stones can become a harem of beautiful young women who will be your concubines and and fulfill your every desire? Is that what he said? Somebody say no, please. Okay. (laughs) Somebody's like, I'm not sure if I want to get into this with Pastor Eric. No, he just said... How would you like some bread? Then he said, he offered, you know, protection from heaven. Said, jump off and you know you're good. You know God's got you. You've got these guardian angels to protect you. Now, is that an awful, sinister thing to to tempt him with? No, that's a good thing, God's protection. And, And then, of course, it's authority. I'll give you all the power over everything that you see if you just worship me. Is... Jesus having authority over everything he could see, is that a bad thing? No. Look, all three of those things, provision, protection, and power, were things the Father had already promised to endow the Son with. Those gifts were already promised and on the way. If the Son had enough patience to wait on the Father's timing, and this is so important, Because it wasn't the what that Satan offered that was a temptation to sin. It was the when and the how. And so often the things we're tempted by aren't bad things. So often they are things God has already wired us to desire. They are good things, good desires, God-given desires, But the temptation to sin comes along when we want them on our time and in our way. This is a little simple formula to to compute uh, temptation to sin. Godly desires plus human shortcuts equals a temptation to sin. All right? If Jesus had taken the bait, if Jesus had said, you know, this is something God wants for me anyway— And it might not be God's time yet, but maybe it is. Maybe he's waiting on me to do this, right? Like, maybe this is my chance. I'm hungry. I would, you know, like uh, to to be held by angels. I don't know. I I would like to be in charge. Like, maybe now's the time. And so instead of waiting on God, I'm gonna go for it. I mean, if Jesus had done that, that would be tantamount to betrayal, What I want us all to see today is that the shortcuts we take, even when they are well-intentioned and rooted in God-given desire, those shortcuts are the root of betrayal. And, And if you've been betrayed by someone else, you can probably figure out what I'm talking about here based on your betrayer's actions. They probably didn't do something completely out of the blue or, 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 you know, they didn't chase something that's inherently bad when they betrayed you, you could probably 
trace back some God-given desire, but they, they took a shortcut to get it. The betrayal of a marriage, for example, can be traced back to a God-given desire, but a shortcut um, to get there. When we talk about Jesus suffering like us, we're talking about him enduring the same kind of temptation to the shortcuts as we've endured, as we endure every day. Jesus suffered like us so that when we suffer these kinds of temptations to betray God, we can take those moments and our questions to Jesus and know we're talking to one who knows exactly what it's like to be where we are. Not a distant God who just judges from a distance, one who knows us and knows what it's like to be us. I want us to think about some of the shortcuts that we take. So we have these God-given desires all the time, right? I mean, God wired us to want certain things. God wired us for love. God wants us to want love. And we have this desire for love, but love is the scariest and costliest thing in the world. And so sometimes instead of waiting on love and giving ourselves away for the sake of love and dealing with the pain that comes with love, we take something else and call it love. So we will take attraction or affirmation or lust or whatever and call it love. And in a similar vein, we're wired, most of us are wired to want uh, sexual intimacy with one person with whom we share the marriage covenant and, and we become one flesh together. I think that's the truest way to define God's hardwiring for most of us and our, our desires for intimacy. But that's hard. It's hard to find that. It's hard to maintain that. It takes two to tango. What if you've married someone who's not on board or they've betrayed you and stepped out on you? And there's all kinds of reasons why you should find a shortcut. And so we'll take something, you know, like promiscuity or pornography, and we'll call it intimacy when it's not. Or we'll say we're just satisfying the desires God gave us when we're really not. We're taking shortcuts that are tantamount to betrayal. And probably the most common example of this would be just, I think, the universal human desire for significance. We want to live significant lives. We want to be good at what we do. We want to leave a good mark on this world. We want to be remembered, not forgotten. We want to leave a legacy behind us. But a real life of significance takes a lifetime of sacrifice, laying yourself down for the sake of others, selflessness, and that's hard to do. And so sometimes we'll take something like success and substitute it for significance. Success is just a shortcut. It's fine to be successful. In fact, I would venture to say that every significant life has been a success. But not everyone this world calls successful has lived a significant life. In fact, very few, I would say, because of how we've come to define those words like success and significance. And so success without generosity and self-sacrifice is just another shortcut that everyone, including Jesus, has been tempted to take. So the devil didn't tempt Jesus with bad things, just bad timing, all right? Just a, a, a bad plan and a bad time, okay? So he tempts us in the same way, okay? Um, uh, by taking something God wants to give us in due time anyway and suggesting a shortcut. And that is, taking that shortcut is the definition biblically of betrayal. 
And this is the recurring theme we've been talking about in Scripture, right? It's like Adam and Eve took fruit that wasn't inherently bad. God made everything and called it very good. So the fruit wasn't bad. It was forbidden, at least for a time, for sure. But God still wanted, it was in God's plan to make Adam and Eve more like him. The devil comes along and says, eat this fruit, you'll instantly be more like him. And so it wasn't that they took something that was evil. It was that they did what they did at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, in the wrong way. And they paid a price for it, obviously. Not only did they betray God, but so did their son Cain by faking a God-given desire to be acceptable to God, like his brother Abel was. But instead of asking God to show me, show me what it means to be acceptable to you, he took matters into his own hands and killed his brother. There's all kinds of examples of this kind of betrayal in Scripture. But the quintessential model of betrayal in the Bible is who? Who do we have to talk about if we're talking about betrayal? Judas, all right? Judas is like Jezebel in that no one names their kids that. <laughs> all right? We'll, we'll name our kid Jude because Jesus had a brother named Jude and, and Hey Jude and all this stuff. But, but Judas, no. It's like Adolf. No, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass on that, all right? Judas is the ultimate betrayer in the Bible. We think of him as a snake, a toxic person, the ultimate villain in the New Testament. And I know a lot of people really love to hate Judas. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess something to you here. I struggle to hate Judas. I, I have a soft spot in my heart for Judas. And, and nobody really wants to talk about this, but I really kind of want to get inside Judas's head. And, you know, I want to I know exactly what it was that motivated him to betray Jesus. Because the common explanation of Judas's betrayal does not add up to me. And it, maybe I'm just one for theatrics, and I don't take the sort of canned explanation for anything. I'm always looking for the conspiracy. It's like, that's just how I'm wired. Um, but there's something more going on with Judas that I think is worth, um, is worth looking at. Now, first of all, we've just got to say, I mean, Jesus gave Judas the great privilege of being one of his 12. Inner circle for Jesus Christ. Huge privilege. Huge opportunity. And Judas squandered it, took advantage of it. And we know that Judas went to great lengths to stab Jesus in the back. Sold him out to the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. This is from Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16 says, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So uh, Judas was an opportunist. He's waiting for the right time. We know that Judas was kind of a coward. He didn't want to hand Jesus over at a time that was dangerous for him personally. And so he waited for the right time. Jesus gave him the right time at the Last Supper when, when he basically prompted Judas to go ahead and get it over with. And, um, and, and instead of um, in reading this part of the passage for you, I thought I would let this young woman that somebody 
somebody told me about on TikTok, um, tell this part of the story for us, okay? Some of you might have seen this viral video. It's about seven seconds long. But it's the responses of, of three different disciples, the third one being Judas. So check this out. This is scripture according to TikTok. One of you will betray me tonight. Is it me, Jesus? No. Is it me, Jesus? It's not you either. Is it me, Jesus? Is it me, Jesus? All right, so... <laughs> That's a super silly thing to do, but... It's a heavy sermon. I didn't know how else to lighten it up. So, um... Is it me, Jesus? has been on my mind all week long, and now it's going to be on yours, okay? Um, so... Uh, and, and just to be clear, we're talking about betrayal so far in the service. And so far, we've had a girl wearing a Red Sox shirt and Rolando wearing a Cowboys hat in the video <laughs> earlier. So we're really uh, bringing this home today, okay, to Houston fans. So, um, so the, the question about Judas is why. Most people think Judas was greedy and that he did it for the money. And it's true that John's gospel makes it pretty clear Judas was a thief, that he was the treasurer for Jesus' ministry, and he helped himself to the funds uh, occasionally, at least, okay? So I'm not excusing that. I'm just saying, even given that fact, I do not believe Judas betrayed Jesus for the money, and I think there's two really important reasons why. The first one being 30 pieces of silver, it's not that much money. I think it sounds like a lot to us. I'd like to have 30 pieces of silver. What's silver worth? I don't know, but it sounds like a lot. 30 pieces of silver in Judas's day probably meant, almost certainly meant 30 denarii, denarii, which is day's wage, right? So the coin, a day's wage. 30 days wages. You know, a month and a half maybe of wages, which isn't nothing. But Jesus is Jesus. It seems like, it seems like if there's ever a head that's worth more than 30, you know, denarii, it would be Jesus. And if Judas was really in it for the money, he could have held out for a bigger payout. But the real evidence for what I'm telling you isn't the payout itself. It's just the fact that Judas gave it back. This is not part of the story that we often um, tell in church, but Judas gave all the money back. This is Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. When Judas, this is after the trial of Jesus, right, when he was found guilty. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. It's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. So I understand it's possible Judas had a wave of, of, of greed, took the 30 pieces of silver, and then had remorse and gave it back. I just don't buy it. To me, it doesn't add up. There's more to the story than that. On the one hand, I think people want to say Judas was just rotten to the core. And, and this was his, the villain role was his from the start. I don't know if I don't know if Jesus would have called someone uh, to be among the 12 disciples who was absolutely rotten to the core with no hope. And more importantly, I don't know if anyone who was absolutely rotten to the core could have 
tolerated following Jesus around, leaving everything behind for three and a half years or more, I guess. And, and it's certainly possible, but I'm not sure that explains the whole story about Judas. I think there's more. And I think part of it comes down to his last name. And first of all, you need to understand, uh, guys didn't have last names in the Bible very often. And if they did, it was just son of Bob or whatever, you know, or it was your hometown. Why, among all the 12 disciples, why did Judas have a last name like Iscariot? Especially when no one else in the Bible is called Iscariot. Very few people, if any, other than Judas were called Iscariot, historically, inside the Bible or not. And so why was this name so important that it's repeated in all four Gospels? And, and, and I think it's one of two things. I think it's either Ishkarioth, which would mean Judas was from a village called Kerioth, which was in Moab, which would make him a foreigner and an outsider. All the other disciples were, in, were from Galilee, and Judas is a Moabite. I think if that were the case, the Gospels would say, look, this dude was a Moabite. On top of everything else, he was a Moabite. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, that's always something they point out about a Moabite. By the way, they were a Moabite. That never comes up with Judas. I think there's another issue that's a translation issue to some degree, a language issue, but, but that Iscariot is, uh, is possible that it refers to another Hebrew word, Sikari, uh, Ishsikari or something like that. Sicario is a movie about all those assassins, right? You've heard, you've seen the movie, some of you. Sinners. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know, I watched it. Um, so, Sicari is a Hebrew word that means one who wields a dagger. Y'all know how Jesus was always given his boys nicknames? We talk about this a lot. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. James and John, sons of thunder. Like, were they strong or... Did they have gas? Or like, what's the reason? Like, why Sons of Thunder? That's a really weird nickname. He called Thomas the twin for some reason. Uh, one of the disciples was called Tiny, and I imagine Tiny was like 300 pounds or something. That's like uh, an ironic. I don't know. I, you know, and it, it's Simon. Simon was what? Simon Peter. Peter wasn't his name. Peter was a noun, a common noun, rock, Simon Rock. That was a, a nickname given to him by Jesus. And if we follow that trend, then it's possible that Jesus gave Judas the name Iscariot, meaning one who wields a dagger. And I think it has multiple layers of meaning if that is the case. First of all, I think it's likely, it's not even just possible, I think it's likely that Judas was a young man who was zealous for the kingdom of God. And he had a God-given good desire for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it had in heaven. And I think he was chasing that desire when he agreed to follow Jesus. We know that there were zealots following Jesus and that they were the ones who were the most upset with Jesus whenever he talked about his plans to be crucified. Like they would, they would be the ones to, to stand up and go, no, 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 that's not the plan, Jesus. And Jesus was like, dude, I'm Jesus. That's, that's the plan. And they're like, we would never let that happen to you, Jesus. They wanted not a... a, a a lamb to go into Jerusalem and lay himself down. They wanted a lion to go in and take over. And so they had this aggressive edge about them. One who wields a dagger, Iscariot, could mean something like that. And of course, the other meaning is this is also one who would stab Jesus in the back. 
But I think it's, if we're onto something here, I think it's a both and and not an either or. I think Judas had good in him. I think he joined the ranks of Jesus with something good in mind. He just, as much as he liked the what, he didn't love the, the when or the how. And so, turning Jesus in the way that he did might have been just a simple act of evil greed, but it might also have been a way in Judas's mind to spark the revolution that he wanted in the first place. I don't know. Whatever the case, Judas clearly regretted what he had done when he saw Jesus being beaten and spat upon in the aftermath of his trial, condemned to die for crimes he did not commit. Nevertheless, as we talk about Judas, I actually am am quite grateful for him and for his story because of what his story teaches us about betrayal. I actually hold out this hope that maybe one day I'll get to meet Judas, and I understand that his chances aren't good, okay? I'm going to be honest with you. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Judas uh, seems to have a deck stacked against him based on uh, the record of wrongs. However, um, you never know how far the grace of God can reach. Um, But what I learned from Judas is something that I see in myself, which is this propensity to take a good God-given desire and and take a shortcut, take matters into my own hands, thus betraying God, betraying Jesus. So in this way, it's easy for us to other Judas. Like, like we're with Jesus and Judas isn't. Look, part of the reason Judas's story is such an important part of the passion is because we're Judas sometimes in the story. Jesus didn't just come to suffer like us. He suffered by us, by our hands. Right? And, and it's, it was our sin that put him on the cross. That's sort of one of the early mantras of Christianity. Jesus was betrayed like us to show us God's heart for us. He was also betrayed by us to show us our heart and what we lack. Um, that's not the end of the story, though. Romans 3, 22 and 23 really unpacks this well. And the, the point of this is that Jesus died because of our sins, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But even so, even though our sin and Judas' sin put Jesus on the cross, the point of Jesus' suffering is so we might know that he was betrayed not only like us and by us, but for us as well. Romans 3.22 says the righteousness of God, everything good about God, is given to all of us by faith in Jesus, not by our own good works, but just by faith through grace. 2021, um, if you remember, it's quite a painful year uh, for our community. If you're new here, I'm sorry, you probably have no idea, but we just went through a lot. We went through a, a major storm. And not just the move, it was a very unexpected move. It felt very last minute and rushed. For many of us, it felt unnecessary. It was very painful. And betrayal is even worse when it comes from inside of the church sometimes, right? Like when, when the church leaders, in many cases, I can imagine how some people in our community felt like, 
It's the handful of church leaders, including me even. Like we were, we were rushing. We were taking shortcuts instead of waiting on God. And, and I felt that way sometimes too, not so much about our mother church, but about the denomination and everything that we left with the, denom- with the United Methodist Church and all of that. And there was so much pain and betrayal and, and, and heartache there um, for everyone involved. I think we're still kind of reeling and healing. And a lot of it was personal. Like for Gio and I, and I, this, the part I'm about to share is I almost like as of this morning, I wasn't going to say this part because I, I don't want to be a whiner about it because I have had, again, the best, easiest life of anyone here, I promise. But in 2021, I learned something about betrayal and Jesus that only living through betrayal can teach you. And once again, my feelings of betrayal had very little, if anything, to do with our former like mother church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about some of the upper-level stuff with the denomination and everything. And after I sort of came out in opposition to denominational leadership and the direction they were taking the denomination, man, people that I thought were my friends started turning on me in a public way, online, like good Methodist people, right? <laughs> like, like, in comment threads and stuff. And I made a mistake of reading the comment threads. Like, why, Eric, why? Are you a glutton for punishment? I think I was. And I just kept reading things they would say about me personally. And, 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 and some of it was pretty bad. Like, I thought about sharing screenshots because, of course, being the glutton for punishment that I am, I screenshotted all of it. <laughs> and I still have it in a folder at home. And it's not healthy. But... The things they said, you know, things uh, like <laughs> they called me uh, a jackass multiple times. Uh, some of them just left the jack off and called me the <laughs> a word and, uh, and, uh, and, and called me, uh, told me to, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you what they told me because it's not, it's not appropriate, <laughs> but you can imagine the worst, okay? And uh, told me I, I was... Uh, they said, I'm probably a closeted, frustrated gay man cheating on my wife in secret. And, and, and this all came from pastors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She said, oh, <laughs> exactly. These were my pastor buddies, all right? And that's why it hurt the worst. And listen, everybody in the Methodist church is hurting. And that hurt continues, even though we're gone and we got out. Thank God. We got out when we did, but the pain continues, and so I don't blame the people that said the things that they said necessarily, but I understand betrayal in a way that I didn't before. And for the first time, not only did I have a God who could empathize with me, but in a way, I could better understand and and sympathize with the suffering of my Lord. And there was deeper communion, a deeper bond there because I understood him more. I trusted him more. And I, I came to see really what it means that Jesus suffered like us and by us, but I really came to see what it means that he suffered for us. Because what that whole ordeal left me with was that as much as I felt betrayed by others, and, you know, that comes and goes, whatever, I realize that I have done far worse and said far worse throughout my life to Jesus and about him with my own choices and words and shortcuts 
and yet he loves me still. He's never given up on me. He's never let me go. And grace so amazing demands a response. So Jesus showed me not only how to survive betrayal and how to thank him for getting me through it, he, he showed me how he was betrayed for me so that I might know how great his love for me really is. And that's the same for you. People in this room right now at Timber Grove and online that feel deeply betrayed, there is a God, the most powerful being in the universe who loves you, sees you, and knows very well what you're going through. You can trust him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this reminder today and um, help us to courageously follow in your footsteps, Lord, and not to become vindictive or hard-hearted. Soften our hearts, Lord. Make us more like you. Father, make our hearts like yours. Make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.